Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. Maybe you've seen those TikTok videos that say, ah, first world problems. You know, my mascara didn't work right today. My my cell phone keeps dropping its signal. I forgot to charge it overnight. My battery's running out. And you think to yourself, well, what exactly is a first world problem? Well, it's the kind of problem that people in the third world in, in impoverished nations, in, in places where they're wondering, will I even get a meal today? I couldn't care less about your first world problem. I mean, did you get the primo parking space that you wanted or, or not? They really, really don't care about it. And you would be amazed how many people tell stories, not realizing the privilege in their story, the gap between the characters in their story and the audience that they're talking to. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast. And the next 90 days, the first 90 days of our January 2024, March, February and March, we're going to talk about story power right here on Leading Leaders Podcast because it really is one of the most impactful aspects of being a great leader, and that is communication. And when it comes to communication, one of the most powerful tools of good communication is a story. Well-selected, well-crafted, well-told, and connected to a call to action that makes sense for the purpose of transformation. Now, today, what I want to talk about is audience connection. And one of the challenges we have with audience connection is, look, if, if the people in the audience don't look like the people in the story, then the people in the audience don't care. And the minute that your story abandons the audience, your audience abandons the story. You've probably been in an audience where you heard someone tell a story from the stage or the platform or the front of the meeting room. And as they tell their story, you realize that has no bearing at all on my life. I, I don't resemble anybody in that story. And nobody in that story resembles me. I don't have those kinds of problems. I, I can give you an example of a story that there was some great revelation for me in the story, but... Never a problem that I've faced yet. I long to one day have the problem that this person had, but, but I don't get it right now. I just have to learn by osmosis and hope that one day it will apply. I was on a call with Grant Cardone and Brandon Dawson, and Brandon was doing some coaching with a lady, and she said, so we've got a company that does about a million and a half a year. We have a great CEO. Uh, we pay him about two and a quarter a year, and and." It, before she could get the next words behind and out of her mouth, she was interrupted. Brandon said, actually, you don't have a great CEO. And she was like, what, excuse me? He said, you, you don't have a great CEO. She's like, well, how could you know that? I haven't told you anything other than our company's gross and, and what I pay them. And he said, well, that's how I know. Because a great CEO wouldn't take the job for less than a million and a half a year. And if a million and a half is what your company is grossing, you can't afford a great CEO. But also, anybody willing to work for 225 and call themselves a CEO isn't really a CEO. They're just somebody holding the position down. So what you have may be a great person. You may have a, a great human being with the title of CEO that you're paying a sizable income to, but 
It's not a great CEO. And if you had a great CEO, you wouldn't be doing a million and a half a year. You'd be doing five to 10 million a year. Now, I have to be honest and say, I haven't broken the seven-figure income yet in my business. And because that's true, I, I don't know what a million-dollar CEO looks like, thinks like, does business like. I, I don't get it. But I can tell you, as I listen to that story, there are a couple of little nuggets of knowledge that I can gain. But that story is not about me. It doesn't include me. And because I realize it's so far over my head, a lot of the information and data in that conversation I could take notes on, but I, it's going to be really hard for me to apply it because I'm just not there yet. Now, it seems like telling a story would be a little bit of a stretch if you realize that the audience you're talking to, well, they're just not, they're just not there yet. I mean, they're not old enough to drive yet, and yet you're telling stories about racing your car on the highway. They're, they're not old enough to be in a dating relationship yet, and yet you're talking about marriage woes. They've never had a five-figure paycheck. They don't know what to do with that. And so the ideas that you express, the, the principles, the values, the foundations, those are all impressive. And I'm sure that, that people will love to have that knowledge in their notebooks and in their journals. But the question they're still asking themselves is, is this about me? Is the story about me? Are the lessons about me? Is the takeaway about me? Or am I just hearing you talk about yourself and your accomplishments? Well, there's been a whole rash, I would say, over the last seven to 10 years. Everything from webinars to sales pitches to all-day conferences, where people feel like, I've got to tell my origin story in order to give you my credibility. I've got to give you my credentials. You need the whole resume. I use a one-minute intro on this video every day for the purpose of saying, for those of you who need to know there are some credentials that I've, that I've been somewhere and I've done some things, uh, there you go. That's it. But I can tell you this as well. When I speak in front of a crowd, I always play that video and then I say, now you've seen the A-side. That's what everybody else offers. It's the polish. It's the presentation. It's the who I am. It makes me look wonderful. How many of you want to hear the B-side? How many of you care about the authentic me? The real human the real human who's much more like you. The real human who messes things up, hurts people's feelings, messes up relationships, makes bad decisions. Yep, he's in here too. And when you realize that we have a lot more in common than you might imagine, then there's a lot more trust built in that. See, the challenge for a lot of people is they only want to tell the story that makes them look, oh, they don't want to tell the story that reveals the, the real truth of their heart. They, they don't want to tell the story about the bad mistakes that they made. And, and if they do, it, it's still a, it's a polished turd. It may be the real failure, but it's still going to come with a lot of glitter and gloss on it. I, I remember when I was a kid, my mother had this little box. And on the outside, it said, I bought you a gift of a gold bar. And when you open it, it was a pile that looked like a dog pile and it was covered in gold glitter and it said, but my dog ate it before I could get it to you. That's what a lot of people's stories look like. A, a really glittery pile of, well, you know. The reality is though, people want to know, do we have common ground? Are we, are we similar in any way? 
What is it about your life that's like my life? And if there's no answer to that question or the answer to that question is indistinguishable, well, then people generally will kind of turn away. If the story that you're telling doesn't include anybody that looks like them, that lived a life like them, that had the same trials that they've had, that has had the same struggles that they've had, well, then you're not talking to them. You, you, might, you might even be talking about them, but you're not really talking to them. Let me give you a contrasting illustration of a story. One, one side of this story. Uh, when my grandmother and I reconnected in my late teens, we got to spend a little more time together uh, right after I got out of the Air Force. And my grandmother had the same car she bought only months after I was born, a 1968 Mustang, the 5.0, from the factory, all original, still had the same hubcaps on it from 1968. I had the privilege of driving that car a couple of times. But after my grandmother reached the place where she needed a little more reliable car, a little more economic car, my dad took the Mustang and put it in a storage unit and gave her a little Nissan whatever. And she drove that for many, many years. She always wanted her Mustang back, but she realized it's, it's old, it needs some repairs, and, and it's not necessarily as trustworthy and reliable as it was when I bought it 40 plus years later. When I realized that car was sitting in storage, I really wanted it. And I offered to buy it for my dad, and he refused to sell it to me. As time went on, the floorboards rusted out. The car got older and older and older, not younger and younger and younger, because cars tend to do that. And as Newton's law dictates, it goes back to chaos. It began to rust and fall apart. And it sat in storage long enough that the value of the car versus what was owed for the storage became a wash and just let it go. And then the guy who owned the storage unit took possession of the car and it left the family. It was a one-owner car. It had never been outside the family, never been sold. It went from my grandmother to my father to the storage owner. And I was heartbroken. I, I mean, I was... I was really kind of crushed because I, I could have bought the car. I would have bought the car. I wanted to buy the car. And now it's out of the family and it's gone. A one-owner legacy of a car that today is worth 10 times what it was worth when it was bought. Maybe 20 times what it was worth when it was bought. I was a little depressed about that. I was a little upset about that. Now, if, if you've never had a legacy, something that could have been passed on to the family and kept in the family for generations and, and watched it slip away, I saw the same thing happen with my uncle when his dad died. Just before his dad died, he remarried and the new wife rewrote the will. And so the hundreds of acres of deer hunting land that even myself, I had helped put fence up on that land. I'd helped feed and clean the, the deer on that land. I'd helped move the cattle around on that land. And she took it and gave it to her children. And my uncle, as an only child, walked away with nothing after his dad died except a broken heart. Those are horrible things. Now, let me set those two stories aside because if you've never had a legacy in your family that you thought you were gonna be able to inherit, maybe you don't relate to that, but let me contrast it with this story. I was in the Congo, a little town called Kinshasa. I say it's a small town, it's about four and a half million people smaller than their capital city, which is almost 12 million people in the very tiny footprint. But in Kinshasa, uh, 
it's a big bustling city. It's a capital city. It's right on the river. Everybody has moved there. It's much more like Manhattan. Kisangani, on the other hand, Kisangani is more like a, a small town. It's also right on the Congo River. It's a, a beautiful little resort town originally in the in the 60s. Uh, before the Belgians left, it was a beautiful resort town. In fact, the little town center has this roundabout with a beautiful marble tile fountain that's six or eight feet tall with a statue on the top of it. And and all of the imagery of that downtown area in the late 60s, that little one-inch blue marble tile all the way around that fountain and the cobblestone streets. And, and you can just see the hustle and the bustle in the photographs. But when I was there in 2016, that fountain is filled to the brim with garbage. I mean, like everyday household garbage. It looked like somebody had gone to their kitchen trash pan and just dumped it in there many times over, all around it. The tiles had been knocked off or chipped off or broken off. The cigarette butts and garbage filled the entire fountain. There was no water flowing from it. It was really quite disgusting. But in addition to that, the cobblestone roads, were, they were impassable. Uh, the Humvee that we were cruising around in while we were in the Congo barely made it through those areas. Uh, but the two-wheeled motorcycles, they, they could only go five to seven miles an hour. The roads were that bad all over, all over the Congo. In fact, from the capital city of Kinshasa to Kisangani, it's a two to two and a half hour flight. It's a 28 hour drive. The roads are that bad. I was there to speak about leadership to the parliament. And a common theme among these parliament members, especially in the outlying areas where they represented the local community, they were the local representatives, the mayor, the city councils, etc. There was a common theme that it's the government's fault that things are like they are. And so I, I asked them at one point, I said, you know, is the road in front of your house level? And all of them, you know, you could just hear the murmur in the crowd. No, 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 it's a, it's a mess. I said, well, raise your hand if you own some kind of gardening tool, like a hoe or a rake or a shovel. And of course, everybody's hands went up. And I said, uh, how many of you level the ground in front of your home? And, and some of them raised their hand. I said, how many of you level the road in front of your house? And they all just looked at each other like, well, but that's the government's job. And I looked at them and I said, but aren't you the government? You're the elected officials. Well, what are the odds if you took the time on the next rainy day when the ground was nice and soft just to go for the 10 or 15 feet in front of your house and just level that? What are the chances that your neighbor would do the same and their neighbor would do the same? And soon your block, your street would be level and clean and clear of garbage. If you took the responsibility to do that, do you think things would change? Of course, there was quite a murmur in the crowd and they, many of them felt like I had accused them of something bad and the mayor's assistant kind of voiced her opinion that that she thought I was being a little bit aggressive and attacking. And so I moved the position back a little bit. I said, let me just ask you this. If you have children or grandchildren and I were to sit down with your grandchild on that fountain in downtown Kisangani and, and show them pictures from the 1950s and 60s of what this very spot looked like, how do you think they would feel about the inheritance that you're passing on to them? See, I know what it feels like to see an inheritance slip through your fingers, the, the thing that you knew one day you would take possession of, and now it's been destroyed or, or give it away or abandoned. It's been neglected and deserted. 
They, they couldn't care less about the classic Mustang. They couldn't care less about my uncle and his land, although those are directly related stories. My understanding of the story of the legacy that slips through your hands is personal and, and emotional to me because I get it. I've been there. But the ability to put that story in the audience's perspective, to talk about the land in front of their house, how their upkeep of their space impacts their neighbors and generations. But see, while it was easy to blame the government, those people off in the Capitol, hours away from here, for not maintaining the roads, for, for not picking up the garbage, for not giving us a place to put a trash can, uh, or a trash can to put trash in, because that's the government's fault, and, and it's not our fault as the local government, it's the central government. We can cast that blame on somebody else but does it really absolve you of the responsibility of the legacy that you're handing down to your children and your grandchildren and your children's grandchildren? Well, the answer obviously is no. But until the audience became the people I was talking to, until they could see themselves sitting in that seat, sitting on that fountain, picturing themselves with their own children and grandchildren, explaining this is what it used to be and this is what we're leaving to you. It used to be this beautiful resort town with these one-inch marble tiles all around this beautiful fountain with water flowing from eight feet high. Today, it's a garbage receptacle. Congratulations. Here's your inheritance. See, the minute that story becomes the audience's story and they see themselves in the story, it changes how they feel about the story. It becomes real to them. Now, if I'd said to that same group of politicians who are moving a lot of money around, listen, a CEO that doesn't earn more than a million dollars a year is probably not a real strong CEO. If they're that good, they're not going to work for less than a million a year. And if they're that good that they're earning a million a year, they're probably going to be producing for you five to 10 million a year. And even though they're politicians and even though they move a lot of money around and even though they're responsible for large budgets, that may be a concept as far over their head as it is mine. It's not bad information. It's just not applicable right now. The challenge for a lot of people in telling stories is that they want to tell a story that is important to them, that relates to them, that identifies the pain that they went through, that talks about their trauma and their drama. It talks about their overcoming because that makes them the hero. But the truth is your story doesn't have any value until it transforms somebody else's life. Your story doesn't have any value until somebody else can see themselves in that story and go, I can see a way forward from here. I identify with the pain that you experienced. I, I get it that you get what I went through. But I also need to know that what you went through and what I went through have enough similarity that your solution is also a solution for me. Because really, I don't care about your story. I care about your overcoming. I don't really care about your story and your overcoming as much as I care about Will what you used to overcome work for me? If the way that you fought addiction and won is successful, can I apply it to my life? I was reviewing a client's content the other day for an online course that's being created. It'll be released soon. And in the content, the, the direction of this particular instructor comes from a very specific background. It offers help to a very specific group of people. But as I listened to all eight modules, I came to the conclusion, this is not just information for that specific group. I, I don't at all question that it will help that group of people tremendously. But I'll, I can also see about half a dozen other groups of people 
who would gain just as much with just a couple of little tweaks, a little bit different story in, in this particular module or another way of looking through the lens of life at this particular issue and solution. With just some minor tweaks and adjustments, we can take what is there now for this very narrow niche then make it available to probably 20 times as many people and see the same kind of results in their life. See, the, the power of story selection, which is what we've been talking about all this week, by the way, we'll wrap up on this portion tomorrow, but uh, we're not done with story selection yet. There's still a lot to be said about selecting the right story. But selecting the story that resonates with your audience means the people in your audience need to look like the people in your story. If you're telling stories about the rich and famous and hope to resonate with high school kids from the inner city, you're going to have a real hard time with that. You're going to have a real hard time with that. If you're talking about first world problems to third world countries, you're going to have a problem with that. If you're only talking through the lens of white privilege to an inner city group of kids or kids who have never experienced that white privilege or don't even know what the phrase means, you're going to have a problem with that. And the solution you offer may or may not have worked for them. But you'll never know that and they'll never know that because when your story abandons your audience, your audience abandons your story. You've got to select a story that includes the characters that look, think, feel, and behave most like the audience in front of you. And I don't care if you've already crafted the entire speech when you walk in the room and realize, I thought I had a bunch of 30-year-old men in this audience, and it looks instead like I've got a bunch of 20-year-old young ladies. You better have some different stories in your arsenal or you're not going to connect with them. If you tell the same story to an audience full of young women that you intended to tell to an audience of old men, you're going to lose them. They don't care. And when your story abandons your audience, your audience abandons your story. Select the story that represents your audience best because the characters in the story look like the audience in the seats. And you'll have a lot more impact from the stories you tell. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast, or Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Lauren is a master teacher on storytelling, and I learned so much. Um, I'm really going to have to sit down and go back through everything, and I think I might have to have some more coffees with Lauren, but uh, it was totally worth my time, and I really highly recommend it if you're looking to grow your ministry, grow your business, uh, grow your career. Uh, Lauren will serve you well. Thank you. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom.